Welcome to Traveling Down Archaeology for the 21st Century. I'm Gary Byers. Got our resident rock star, Dr. Stephen Collins, with us today. And we are in the, the TSU Museum of Archaeology and Biblical History here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, our home base. And uh, in our museum, we've got uh, over 500 items displayed, uh, hundreds and hundreds more uh, in storage, and we use that for research and, and uh, other things. But we got lots of stuff, and uh, if you're ever in Albuquerque, give us a call and come visit and see it. But today we want to show you some things that we have here. And um, uh, today we're going to talk about weapons. We're going to talk about the, that part of the world. And so uh, we, we've, we've got uh, five or six of them here. And these are all offensive weapons uh, that you can really make an impact with. And so, Dr. Stephen Collins, uh, this handle is modern. This blade is not. Tell us about it. Well, um, this, uh, this doesn't look formidable to me. No, it you doesn't. Know, it, you know, I, I think uh, if somebody were coming after you with this weapon, you might chuckle a little bit. You know, it, it reminds me of that, uh, what was that first Crocodile Dundee movie? where the guy pulls a knife on him and then he pulls out his knife, which is about right. 10 times bigger. Right. And, and he looks at that and he says, no, this is a knife. Well, it kind of reminds me of this. This doesn't look like something that would, that would frighten anybody off. But, but there's a reason for this. Um, in, in the world of ancient uh, weapons and defensive uh, gear like helmets, in that world, there are always the research and development guys, the R&D guys. And so whenever you come out with a better weapon, for example, the first weapon is basically a club, a stone with a hole in it that you can put a, a stick through. And what do you do with that? Over the head. You clonk people over the head with it. So that's a basic good weapon. Okay. Well, about the time, you know, and I'm sure the, the, the R&D guys are never in the battle. They're always standing back going, hmm, I think we could fix that. Uh, so when somebody gets clobbered on the head, what's the response to that? A helmet. Yeah. So if you can get a helmet of some kind, whether it's leather, maybe it's, it's metal. Uh, I don't know if that would work, Gary. But um, you would have some sort of protection, at least even though it might kind of daze you and give you a headache, it might not kill you, you might be able to kind of fight through. And uh, so um, the R&D guys are always making something better. Now, when you get a helmet, the research guys and development guys have to come up with something that's going to puncture the helmet. So, so back in, just think of this, back in the early Bronze Age, now they did have some spears and daggers and things like that made of copper. But that was very expensive stuff. And so a stone called a mace, a mace head, a stone with a, with a hole through it and a stick through it, that, that's a great deal. You just clump people on the head with that. But when they came up with a helmet in the Middle Bronze Age, we, we come forward a little bit, um, they had an answer for that. And in the Middle Bronze Age, that was the answer to the helmet. And I say, well, what does this do? Well, 
you have your shield, and you, or you might have a sword in one hand, and you might learn to fight with both hands, like you trial. Gary is a famous, uh, when, he, when he's on the dig and he's troweling, sometimes he gets this double trowel, one, a trowel in each hand, this double trowel action going, which is uh, kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. And he's the only one that I've ever seen do that. And, but um, this is kind of like that. Maybe you have another dagger over here or your shield, which is also can be used as a weapon. But what that's for is getting close enough to put that through a temple. Put that right in the middle of the skull because it's going to go right through the... This is going to puncture a good enough, hard enough swing and you're going to go right through this little thing right here. It's going to go right through the helmet. So this is for puncturing helmets. That's what that dude does. So anyway, it was an answer... (laughs) <laughs> to the helmet. Yeah. But uh, eventually, now they really like, in the Middle Bronze Age, they really like the battle axe. And there's one called the Epsilon Axe, mm-hmm. or also a version of it called the Duckbill Axe, because it looks like a duckbill. looks like a, uh, an Epsilon, the Greek letter Epsilon. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll, uh, while I'm saying this, we'll get Danny to go pan over uh, one of the other cases and pick up one of those and look at it. And uh, so they can see it. But um, let's, let's fast forward from the Middle Bronze Age into the next period, into the Late Bronze Age. So when you get to the Late Bronze Age, the battle axe is kind of still all the rage, the concept of basically having a, a weapon that is a hacking weapon, not a thrusting weapon. We, something like this, which we'll get to later, now, they do have these in the Late Bronze Age. In fact, this is from the latter part of the Late Bronze Age. But uh, this is more of a stabbing weapon. But for the big swords, for the big weapons, they still liked the battle axe concept with a single sharp edge. Now, they call this, we call that, they probably didn't call it that, but we call it a sickle sword. Now, a, a sickle is normally used in harvesting grain. Right. And, and you, take, you take, take it like this, a sickle, and this is the sharp edge, and you grab a stalk and you cut it off. I guess I should have done it up here, huh? Grab a stalk and cut it off this way. So that's, that's what a sickle normally does, but this one is, is not like that. Now, this is, this is actually a modern reproduction, and uh, so this is modern bronze. Uh, but this, and, and you feel it, there's, there's no edge here whatsoever, which is what there normally would be on a sickle. But this outside edge, this is sharp, even today. And, and so this was a sickle sword. And, and so, so, you, you, so you're not going to hit the guy this way. You hurt him because that's a head. Yeah, that's it, pretty, is, it is a pretty stout weapon. And in fact, it's a good, good two-hander. You come at somebody like this with two hands. But what would happen if you tried to... Stab somebody with that, yeah, you'd get, or to thrust somebody. You'd, you'd at least, you, you know, know, it would hurt. hurt, hurt you might tummy. knock the wind out of them, yep. but it probably probably not going to kill. Yeah, them. That's not yeah, going to go very not gonna, far. Not going to puncture much, but this really would, and it's sort of a, a cutting and slicing. Yeah, it's almost like a two-fisted kind of a thing, yeah. where you're coming at people like this, and really you're you're trying to cut severely into or lop off an arm, yeah. or cut their head off, or cut their neck in half, or I mean, it's a it's. It's a brutal weapon. 
So what and time period was this used? This is the late Bronze Age. This and is the time of Moses and Joshua. So this is what the sword that they knew. This is the sword they knew. This was the principal sword every soldier in the late Bronze Age in the Near East would carry with them. Now, the Israelites... And by the way, if you look on Egyptian art, and you look at the weapons they're carrying, if you're in the late Bronze Age, that's what they've got right here. You'll see them carrying the sickle swords. And so, so now the average Israelite marching out of Egypt may not have had one of these. They, they take whatever they had with them as, well, as since weapons. Since the Israelites plundered the Egyptians when they came out, probably one of the main things they hauled off was a bunch of weapons they and, could use. And certainly after the Red Sea, they might have picked up a few as well. Yeah, they could have picked up a few around there. Yeah. Had to, maybe had to swim a little bit to get to them. Yeah. So, so this, is, this is that late Bronze Age sword as Steve said, we call it a sickle sword or a, a, a curved sword. And, uh, and it was a really formidable weapon. Took it up a notch uh, from, from the Middle Bronze Age uh, axe, battle axe. Now, we're staying in the late Bronze Age. But I, this is the fun one because it has, a, it has a Bible story that relates directly to it. Now, not to this very one, but to one like it. Um, you can see that that's about, now, depending upon how tall you are, your cubit can be a little longer or a little shorter because a standard cubit is kind of from your fingertips to your elbow. So that's kind of a cubit. Yeah, cubit's a Latin word for elbow. So it starts at your elbow and then goes up and it'll be something in the neighborhood of 18 inches. Well, say 18 inches. Yeah, of course, sort of the, standard. Of course, the government cubit King's always going to have a bigger cubit than Was about else. 20 inches. Yeah. So uh, if you had to deliver a 10 cubits of cloth yeah. as, as a tribute, uh, now if you were selling 10 cubits of cloth to the guy on the next block, he'd get 10, 18-inch cubits of cloth. But if the king wanted tribute of 10 cubits of cloth, that was going to be 20 inches a cubit. The royal cubit, every so time. So the king's going to get more out of you no matter what. So anyway. Is this, this is an ancient blade. This is a real blade. This blade is, it's, it's an ancient this is, blade. This is the late Bronze Age blade. This is the late Bronze Age pommel that goes with this blade. But this is a modern, is a bone handle put on in modern times, but actually these little copper rivets do go right through and hold it on to the actual sword, to the actual Very cool. blade. So anyway, uh, this, I guess, had disappeared in antiquity, mm -hmm. but we put it back on there. And um, so anyway, this you might call this a one cubit, it's maybe not quite, but it's a one cubit sword. We really call it a big dagger. Yeah. So um, now there's a story in the book of Judges. Do you remember which one? Yes. Uh, Ehud, the left-handed dagger stabber. How do we know he was left-handed? Bible says so. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I thought it was going to be a trick question. Oh, no. I, okay, that's yeah. pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's it. From well, the did, tribe of Benjamin, the Well, it did guys. say, now, when he hid the dagger, we're going to tell the story in a minute, but when he hid the dagger, which thigh did he strap it to? 
Well, normally soldiers were right-handed you, right. you, when you were using the weapons right-handed. And so a right-handed soldier puts his, his sword over on this side, so you're going to reach across. So it, when you're going through, and you, of course, everybody's wearing a robe, and underneath that robe, uh, they, they would be checking your left side because they would assume that's where your dagger is. But the tribe of Benjamin had a whole number of trained soldiers. Lefties. And they were lefties. And so they would not have... The, it, would, it would be awkward. So theirs was on this side, and apparently that was part of the So was Ehud a Benjamite? Yes. Wow. Left-handed. I know the Benjamites had, the Bible says, the Benjamites had seven, six or seven hundred. Seven hundred... Slingers. Six hundred, or was it six or seven? Yeah, seven. Anyway, a few hundred slingers, left-handed slingers, yeah. who could sling at a hair, that means a hair on your head, and not miss. So there were a bunch of lefties yeah, and men. And specially trained, almost like Delta Force, you know, specially yeah. trained yeah. troops, left-handed. So Ehud was one of these dudes. Yeah. Now, he went after somebody. It says, it says he fashioned, he went and got a really good one. You know, and I don't know, maybe in that day it was like, you know, buying this piece of a weapon and that piece and that piece and kind of, kind of put them together, make your own deal. Uh, it kind of sounds like that. Maybe he got a blade from one guy, got another guy to make a handle, or maybe he made his own handle, put a pommel on it, assembled it together, said he fashioned a one-cubit sword, and he's in the late Bronze Age in yeah. the Book of Judges. So uh, he takes that one-cubit sword. Now, he's going after a target. He has an assassination in mind, and who is that? That's Eglon, the Moabite king, who had come across the river and was there at Jericho in his palace. And we know that there was a, what's called the middle building, the late bronze two yeah. building or whatever it was. There was a building there yep. and he's coming on over. So they're gonna, they're gonna frisk him on the left side because most soldiers are right-handed. And, uh, and so they frisk him, he's clean, have no idea that he's got a weapon over here. And then he says, I've got a message. Now, doesn't it say that he strapped it to his right thigh? Yes. That's how we know he's left-handed. Yes. Well, it actually says he's left-handed. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it said, I think it yeah. also says it strapped, yeah, he I strapped so. it to his right thigh. That's what he would have done. Yeah. So they wouldn't have known. And so he insisted that he need to speak to the king alone, a special message, a, a, a divine message. And, and so the king was a little impressed. You know, oh, I got a divine message. So he sent his, his people out and left Eglon alone with him uh, in, in the... Uh, King Eglon left Ehud alone with him. Well, for him, palace. that was a mistake. It was not a good choice. So, so Ehud goes in to meet with King Eglon. Now, the Bible says very specifically that Eglon was a man of remarkable girth. I think it just says he was just a really big, fat guy. That's what it says. Really big and fat. And so Ehud, lefty Ehud, yeah. reached over, pulled out his one cubit sword, it calls it, and he plunged it into right in Eglon's gut. belly. And the Bible says the blade went in, the handle went in to the fat of Eglon's belly, and he lost his entire sword inside the king's belly. He couldn't get it out. Couldn't get it. He just, it just slipped in, and he couldn't get it out, and so he ran out without his sword. King falls over, 
roll, roll, belly roll there, and he just can't get it out, so he has to leave without his sword, and, which was okay with him because he accomplished his job. Yeah. So, so anyway, now those were brutal days. It's kind of like the, the Old West without guns, right? Um, yeah, they, they were, it was a tough time to live, but Eglon found that out. Now we have some other weapons here. Uh, this one is actually, we actually broke the little bone handle. We have to get it replaced. But um, this is modeled after a bronze ceremonial dagger taken from King Tut's tomb. Yeah. So you could get, you know, just everyday stuff like this. You know, buy that at the dime store or wherever and uh, make, a, make a sword out of it. But this one is sort of high fashion. It's made to look good. You know, when you're the king and you're, you, know, you have photo ops and now they didn't do that back then. But, you know, you're public, you're a public figure, you dress nice. You know, you got the, the gold and you got all the jewelry and you're going to carry something fancy. So that, that's what that's all about. But this one, now we can go coming way, way forward. And in fact, we have one over there uh, actually on its, on its spike, spike or... Yeah whatever, what do we call it? It's actually called a pike. Yeah. And, but it's, it's on its shaft. And, um, but this is iron. And of course, this is going to be from the Iron Age. So this is an Iron Age. You call this kind of a pike or a javelin. This is from the Roman period, this big one. So, so Romans, look how tall that is. So Roman soldiers in a phalanx, you know, as they're marching up, 15, 20, 30, uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder, and several deep, right? Just a big, solid block of men, each with a, with a shield. They could put their, their body size shields up and, and stand behind them. They could, the guys in the middle could put their shields over the top. They could literally uh, fortify that entire phalanx with, with these defensive shields like armor, and, and move across the battlefield. And why would you want to do that? Because archers from the opposing army would shoot hundreds of arrows, just hails and clouds of arrows all at one time. Well, you've got callers on the field moving the phalanxes or blowing the trumpets or doing the signaling, and they can tell that phalanx to move to the right, move to the left, 10 steps to the right, 20 steps forward, and they can move them all over the field. The commander can stand up on a high hill and he can move vocally everybody around. Well, somebody's calling, say, incoming, you know, that sort of thing. And they know that in like three seconds, a hail of arrows is going to descend upon them, maybe hundreds or thousands of arrows. So what, so what does the phalanx do? Those soldiers, highly trained and calmly, raise their shields all around and wait for the volley to go. And, the, and then one of the watchers, observers, would say, all clear, yeah. 20 steps forward. You know, he could move. The, by the way, this is, the, and of course the phalanx goes back to the time of Alexander the Great. This is why he was able to yeah. just completely uh, overcome the, the Persian army which was twice, three times as big as his, but he was able to do it because they looked at this thing going, what do you do now? 
I mean, they're going to march right through us and we can't penetrate them. And, and on the outside ranks, all the way around, whether they move to the left or the right, backwards or forwards, the guys on the outside ranks had these going through their, you know, between the shields. So they could literally just walk any direction, 360, with, with these things out front. And uh, what do you do? And so a lot of times the, the opposing army on the field, which is what they were used to, what, was here's your army over here and there's an army over there. And if somebody yells a command and everybody runs together willy-nilly and clashes and does hand-to-hand combat. And you, how many movies have you seen like yeah. that? Right? Everybody just runs together, and it's each man for himself. You, you try to kill as many of the enemy soldiers as you possibly can. Well, the, the Romans were not that kind of fighters. Now, they could. If they had to break ranks and go hand-to-hand, all the better. This is good, but this is not how they won the Roman Empire. This is not how they annexed. What they did was calmly move across the battlefield, this phalanx going that way and flanking, this one going that way. Of course, they got some cavalry riding around as well. And uh, as they move, the other army's trying to figure out, what do I do? I can't run up there by myself and like beat up on this hundred man phalanx. What am I supposed to do? And so a lot of times the armies would just break and run out of sheer fear. And of course, part of that was too that of course, the Romans are, have flaming mm-hmm. ballista <laughs> flying as well. It, it's, uh, but this is, this is really a big part of it. This is going to be right coming out of every phalanx. You're going to have a hundred of these maybe going around the outside. And, and at very, you know, one every man. And uh, from the Roman period to the days of Abraham, archaeology. This is Troweling Down, archaeology for the 21st century. Thanks for joining us.